Hey, welcome or welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where we help you get better at doing hard things. Today on the show, I am joined by Christine Coldry, who is a scientist. She is an ultra, ultra, ultra endurance athlete, and she is the woman's world record holder of the Decker Ironman. So for those of you not familiar, a Decker Ironman is a 38k swim, it is 1,800 kilometer cycle and 420 odd kilometer run at the end of all of that. Christine is a self-confessed normal-ish person and it was epic to have a chat with her about going through this, the preparation for it and the mindset required behind it. Really it's a conversation about exploring our boundaries, exploring what's possible and challenging some of those limiting mental blocks that we set ourselves. I really hope you enjoy getting uncomfortable with Christine and I today. Christine, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Thank you for joining me early in the morning. It's good to be here. Christine, I always like to start with people with a little bit of background about yourself. Where were you born? Where did did you grow up? I was born in England in 1974 and my parents moved to New Zealand right around when I was five which I've been always very thankful for them because it meant that I grew up in a much easier place um, with a lot lot more freedoms to to roam and to and to do to do well in life and yeah so I I went to little country schools in Rotokaui and Te Kofi and then went off and did a Bachelor of Science degree at Lincoln University um, pretty much throughout my my childhood I had written in my school reports every year Christine should stick to academic and musical interests and not sporting interests because um, I really had no no natural sporting ability what, whatsoever. But after, after my Bachelor of Science at Lincoln, um, I got a, a scholarship to go and do a PhD at the Cam- uh, University of Cambridge in England, um, so sort of full circle there. And I was quite, quite wanted my work to take me to, to different places. And so after finishing that PhD, I um, did a couple of postdoctoral research positions um, in the Washington DC area in um, sort of the, the human human health sort of space um, using mouse models uh, and model human disease and, and try and try and find cures for things like um, cancer and and hemophilia and uh, and things like that. But probably about 13 or 14 years ago, all of a sudden I decided that it was it was time to come back home come back home to New Zealand. Um, it was just pretty much from one day to another I was like I'm I'm done with this traveling I want to want to go back and and live in in what I consider the best country in the world but while while I was in the US I did actually actually fall in with a group of people called collectively known as Odyssey Adventure Racing um it's people that put on multi-day adventure races and and ultra distance triathlons when I was young my mum always used to warn me that you know be careful who you're friends with because you'll start acting like they are and and all through high school and university, I was very resistant to peer pressure of the of the bad kind. But it turned out that my mum was right because I, I got in with this group and saw that it was actually it was actually quite possible for what relatively normal people to do really quite extraordinary um, sporting feats. And and well, I thought, well, if they can do it, I I can give it a go. And that sort of started me off down the path of of ultra distance racing. So so I. I Combine that now. Now I work at um, Livestock Improvement Corporation in Hamilton, and I'm a senior scientist there, doing a lot of data analysis on on DNA sequence um, type things. 
that sounds fascinating actually as well that could be another podcast that we do with you but I want to dig into some parts of that a little bit more Christine you mentioned that all your school reports said that you should stick with academics and music that the the physical side of things as a child people looking in probably Mm. didn't rate you that highly did you enjoy being physical as a as a kid and as a young person not really like I wanted to it was Mm. like I had this desire to but I was just so terrible at it that when I was doing it I didn't really enjoy it like I wanted to be good at it no but but I just I just wasn't good and you know I was pretty unfit and my mum is very fit and she believed that everything could be cured through through doing um, physical activity and so she was very encouraging of doing physical activity but it just it really just wasn't my thing and I think, I think partly because at school you either have to have really good eye-to-hand coordination to be able to catch and throw, or you have to be good at sprinting. And to this day, I'm still not good at either, but it turns out that, that what I can do is I can I can go well for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and like it's, it's fascinating that you bring that up as well, because I was lucky enough to be one of the kids that was good at the eye-to-hand coordination, but was also good at sprinting. So <laughs> I, found, I found the physical side of things quite easy at school but looking back there I remember the kids that that weren't that um that didn't have that and kids are quite mean as well mm-hmm. at that age is especially if you're kind of picking teams in the playground and those kids get picked last and they oh, don't really get, yeah don't really get the ball passed to them that much and and it's not always I, I think kind of intentionally mean it's not always calling someone names but it's just sort of almost excluding them without trying if you're fairly competitive anyway so that must have been yeah that must have been reasonably challenging for you from from that perspective and and maybe kind of disheartening that you wanted to be good at something but there wasn't that support there when you were younger to to do it from people other than your mum yeah but you know what I what I learned at a very early age was really you just needed to have one good friend and I had I had a fantastic friend all the way through school and he wasn't very good at sport either and you know so we just and he had he had parents that that were very good and so both of us had the support from at home and we were pretty confident in ourselves and we just we just went about our thing and and did our thing together and that was like even all the way through high school you know I hear about kids being bullied and I sort of sometimes look back and wonder why I wasn't bullied more at high school because I was my friend Joel and I we were the perfect targets for bullying but somehow we just we kept to ourselves and yeah it was all right. Mm, yeah, I mean I was a I was a little bit of a weird kid as well. So it was I think I think sport was one of my redeeming uh, or one of my saving graces that I that I fit in with people through that. But it, yeah, I used to get my sandwiches stolen at school sometimes. But turns out bullies don't like marmalade sandwiches. So if you're listening, you <laughs> take marmalade sandwiches. People don't steal them off you. So Christine, I mean you. You fell in with these these adventure racing people. Like, how did that mm-hmm. come about? Like, had you well, had you started so, to explore the physical side of things a little bit more by that stage? Yeah, yeah. So, it, as an undergraduate at Lincoln, I I started riding my bike. So, so I wouldn't say I was depressed, but I would say I was headed that way. And as as an undergrad, because I put a lot of pressure on myself to to be the best, because I always always had to be the best. And that I found that quite hard being away from home. I, I left home to go to university when I was only 16. And in that first year, I found it quite hard. And, and one day, I just I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I got on my bike and, you know, like a really old crappy sort of warehouse special. And I rode 10Ks. And that made me feel awesome. So whenever I felt not so good, I 
got on my bike. So I'd started riding a little bit and started riding to university and and swam a little bit. And in my last year, one of my friends signed me up for like the most tiniest, tiniest ever triathlon. And for me to be able to run one and a half Ks was, was something epic and I might have needed to walk a little bit in it. But the feeling I got from doing that triathlon, I didn't come dead last. Like for the first time, I was like, oh, well, actually I can I can compete in something. And that was that was such a buzz. So I'd sort of started doing a little bit a little bit more and a little bit more. And unlike most people who seem to want to go faster, I just wanted to see how far I could go. So then that's when I went off to a PhD in Cambridge, sort of rowing was the thing you did. So so I rowed a little bit. wasn't anything special. But uh, again, sort of was running a little bit more and um, and having a really bad PhD day one day, I, I signed up for the London Marathon thinking, oh, I won't get in anyway. But then, then I did. Um, so then I had to train up for, for that. So I'd run a marathon. And then one of the people that I that was my friend um, at, at Cambridge, he was actually from the US and he lived about two hours drive away from where I where I moved to. And he called me up one day and he says, oh, I found this race. It's, it's a double Ironman triathlon. We, we can do it as a team. I'd quite like to try and run two marathons. Will you do the swim? And that race was put on by Odyssey Adventure Racing. And so we met up with them and we did that race. We found ourselves a cyclist. I liked what I saw with these people. So um, they always needed volunteers for their adventure races and their ultra distance triathlons. And I, I felt like I sort of fit in very easily with them. So I started spending a lot of time volunteering for them and just hanging out for them. And it was like, like I guess that would have been 24, 24 or 25 then. Um, it was like, it was just kind of like I'd found, I found a niche. Mm. I found my niche in life. I'd found this group of people that I didn't have to pretend to be anything. I, I like everybody was just come as you are and, and that. And so after probably three years of volunteering for them, I watched these people doing these races and I thought, well, actually, you're these fantastic athletes, but really when you're not racing, you're really just normal people. So, so well, maybe I should try that. So, yes, yeah, so I signed up for, for my first double Ironman to do to do the whole thing in 2002. And, I mean, a, a double Ironman is uh, it's a, it's a decent amount of, uh, of movement. For the people yes. that aren't familiar with, kind of, with, with Ironman, what, yeah. sort of, what sort of distances are we talking here? So a double Ironman is a 7.6-kilometre swim, a 360-kilometre bike, and then two marathons, so 84.4 kilometres of running. How long did that take you? I think the first time I did it, I think it took 33 hours, in the order of 33 hours. It was, a, it was, it was 35 degrees pretty much the entire time. It was brutal. It was, that was probably the most pain I'd ever been in at that point in time on that, on that marathon, and, you know, sort of on the... You know, we've done probably 26 hours and I have like one marathon left and you think, oh, you know, once you get to that point, it'll be really easy. It'll be a breeze. You know, you'll just have one marathon left. But actually, then you start doing the calculations. They're like, well, actually, that's still another, that's still another six hours. And like the pain in my feet, I was, I spent a lot of time thinking about the people who were forced to march in the Baton Death March. And I was like, well, actually, they didn't have a choice. And, but, but yeah, this, this is actually, actually quite a lot like torture. Were there times during that one that you felt like just stopping? No. I quit something once when I was eight. Okay. And that made me feel so bad that I never wanted to feel like that again. So I, I, one of the things that I'm very poor at in life is quitting mm. anything. Sometimes to my detriment. But, um, yeah. I, yeah. When I do crazy anything, um, quitting is, is not something that really ever comes into my mind. 
that's that's interesting because I'm like I can imagine the pain that you were in on running that last marathon. I mean, I've never done a, a double Ironman. I've never done a single Ironman either, actually. But um, I've run a, <laughs> a, I've run a few ultra runs, and just some of the pain that you get into with with that that must have been a painful experience for you when you were eight to uh, to overpower that <laughs> physical pain there, Christine. The big thing that I wanted to talk to you about today was the Decker Ironman that you did. <laughs> I mean, you, you've figured out, okay, these, these normal-ish people can, can do extraordinary physical feats. Why can't I? And you, and you started and done a, a double Ironman. Where did the idea for a Decker Ironman come from? So that same group of people, you know, you, you help put these races on and you see these people and... And then some of them have done Deco Ironmans and you chat with them and they talk about it and they share their stories and that probably planted the the seed pretty pretty early on. I'm not sure that I was convinced I wanted to do it directly after the double Ironman, but but in and around that time, hanging out with those people, just hearing the stories of of seeing what these people were what what was actually physically possible because you if you've never seen people do something like that you think that's that's not possible or if you read about it in a book you think that's that that can't be possible to that people can go that far that hard for for that long and yeah it was something that I'd had in the back of my mind probably probably since the early 2000s just having having met people that that had done it but you know these these things take take a lot of money and um, there aren't that many of them in the world and for the longest time the only race was in was in Mexico um, and I was I was sort of in a in a financial state where I could possibly do it and being in New Zealand now it's sort of it's, it's a lot further to go and you need support crew and, and things like that but then the the location of it and that it was in Mexico in 2012 the race was supposed to be in November and in May I read a story of 39 decapitated bodies being found outside that city and my support crew and I decided that we we didn't really need to be going there <laughs> so I rode eight laps of Taupo instead that year <laughs> okay good 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 <laughs> it's really interesting one of the points that you made there in regards to hanging out with people that have done these what we would think is kind of extraordinary feats because we we often really put limitations on ourselves and they're, they're all mental limitations because we think, oh, that's just ridiculous, that isn't possible. But when you start looking around for examples of things that, have peop- that people have done that you think are impossible, most of the time there's some stuff out there, whether that's if it's doing a Decker Ironman or if it's, or if it's kind of starting a creative project and, and taking it somewhere or, or whatever. And it's, it's fascinating how much we limit ourselves because we're not exposed to people that actually think, oh, I've done that. That's just yeah. kind of normal. Well, it's not normal, but... Normal is all about the people that you hang out with. What do they do? And, like, normal normal changes, and, and it depends on, you know, on, on your environment. You know, where I work, everybody's super smart. You know, I don't feel very smart in that group, but, but being smart is, is normal in that group, whereas you sort of go into other communities or you know like or other work environments and and that's not normal being smart you know if you if you're if you're smart you're the outlier and and will be teased for it so it's the same with it's the same with racing it yeah it's it's what you what you surround yourself with becomes normal mm. so decided not to go to mexico in 2012 what was the what was the process from there to get to the <sighs> deca iron man 
it's, these things are always a slippery slope too. Mm. So the following year, um, the people, it was no longer Odyssey Adventure Racing. The, the name had changed to um, USA Ultra Tri, but there was one of the same people who was putting on the race. They decided they were going to put on a, a quintuple Ironman, so five times the distance of Ironman. And oh, a couple of friends said, oh, well, Kirby's putting on this race. You should come along and do it. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I know the race course. I know the loop because it's all done on a, a small loop format. Oh, maybe, maybe I should go do that. So I signed up and, and once you signed up, then, you know, you do the work and I went and did it and, and was pretty surprised. Like I was quite a bit older than when I did my first double Ironman and I'd done a triple two years later and I was quite surprised by my perception of pain changed quite a lot. There were lots of periods of time where I knew I was in a lot of pain, but instead of being the suffering that I remember from when I did the double and triple, which really, really was suffering, in the quintuple, there were there were phases of the race where, while I knew I was suffering, while I knew it was painful, it wasn't really suffering. It was like I was in this sort of zen state where it was like my emotions had been completely disconnected from, from the pain that I was feeling. There was still a lot of pain at, at times in, in that race, and um, it rained it rained, the, rained for the five days that that race was on. So it was pretty pretty miserable conditions at times. I was like I was quite blown away with how differently my brain accepted the hardship and and I was quite fascinated by that and it was probably one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life to to reflect on and to say oh well actually you know if you'd asked me then what level of pain I'd, I would have been in I would have said a nine out of ten but actually like there was no badness associated with that it was just really matter of fact and and I was quite quite amazed by that yeah interesting that is that that is fascinating and why do you think that was like looking back on that what had what had changed that allowed you to just I mean have pain but just accept that it was there I'd just done more like I had more experience of doing crazy long races I trained trained harder like physically I was like I was in, in better shape I would say but also probably I don't think maturity is the right word, but just the experience, like understanding how it is and it not being strange, like that, it, that, that being in pain is actually normal, like can be normal, like there's good pain and there's bad pain. And I do listen to the bad pain, but just having experienced quite a lot of physical pain over doing, you know, various things that I'd, I'd done in between, um, that that actually was, had just expanded to, to actually be, be normal. I will say in that race that the last marathon was was suffering. Um, there, were, there was plenty of suffering in the last marathon of that race too. But but there were there were these bits where I where I absolutely knew that it hurt, but it it wasn't at all suffering. And yeah, it's, it's something I've thought about a lot. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really important point as well. Is and and I've talked to a few people about this, how they respond to pain, and I think it as you say it's putting yourself in that situation and having experience with it and kind of going through that pain and then understanding that you come out the other side and that actually as humans that we're ridiculously resilient that we can put our bodies through so much if we look after them in the recovery phases and the preparation phases that actually they'll withstand a whole lot and this pain is not actually an indication that something's being damaged. It's just an indication that we're working really hard. Um, we're, yeah. we're pushing ourselves kind of beyond our current capacity. But to extend our capacity, we need to do that. We need to, to push there. So, yeah, that's that's pretty pretty cool, actually. And it, was, and it was also during that race, sort of like, so I'm a, trained as a biologist, and 
physiologically to to feel what was happening in my body. You could see the, the body would get to a point and it'd be burning fat and burning fat. And then all of a sudden it'd be like, okay, okay, you either need to stop now or you need to eat some more food. And then and then you'd be running along and you'd think that, oh, I'm so tired and I've still got, you know, I still know that I've still got another day and a half to go. Like, I don't know how I'm going to do the next day and a half. But then all of a sudden it would be like there'd be some spurt of something, I don't know, some hormone produced or something. But all of a sudden you'd, you'd get your... 20th wind or your 100th wind carry on and and just even how so I would sleep during that race I slept three hours and well, I didn't sleep the first night but three hours and every 24 after the first after the first 48 hours and just how much the body would recover in that three hours sleep was just blew me away every day as I would go to bed feeling like oh I don't know how I'm going to carry on tomorrow but wake up three hours later and once I got going um, actually surprised by the amount of recovery that had already happened Mm, yeah and it's yeah that's that's interesting as well and I've talked to a few guys on the on the podcast one that did a six-day race walking event and that Richard was one of my first guests actually and he I think he slept like 10 hours over the entire six days and walked something like 600 kilometers and a guy Craig who has the cycle record for going the length of New Zealand Um, and I think he slept four hours over the course of a couple of days to to get down there as well and it's 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 fascinating and I mean as we were talking before uh, we started recording I've got a reasonably young son who doesn't sleep particularly well Um, and it's amazing what you can do on on minimal sleep you need to you need to catch up later obviously but uh, just interesting how you function on that so yeah, so that was that was 2013, and then I then I changed jobs, and um, it turns out that I now work in a in a place where there are other crazy people. So um, we've had a team LIC and got in the God Zone Adventure Race, um, not this year, but the, the three years prior to that. So that that kept me busy training and racing in that. But then I knew of um, an American who was looking to put on a Deca Ironman um, in the US, and he finally he finally pulled it off. It's no it's no mean feat to get all the permits and a good place to do it. And so last November um, was was Deckerman um, Deckerman USA, and I I've been training for that really solidly for the I guess it was six or seven months from God Zone from when we finished God Zone last year through to through to November, and I sort of had it in my mind that that I might want to challenge the world record, and that actually I've always been quite motivated training. I I would never say that I'm leaping out of bed in the morning at, at um, 5.20 in the morning to ride the 40Ks to work. That never fills me with much joy, but I'm, I'm very motivated to do the training, but, but getting on my bike or getting out running or is always quite an effort. Um, I, I like the fact that I've done it more than the, the starting to do it. But, uh, but with that goal of wanting to break the world record somehow, that really, really motivated me and the distance of the race, knowing how hard the quintuple was, scared me a lot. So I trained, I trained harder than I've than I've ever harder and smarter than I've ever trained before in those months between God Zone um, and and the Decker Ironman and really yeah with with the, the training was was hard and I I mean I I bike commute um, as I said 40 k's each way I bike commute pretty much regardless of what the weather is if the wind's going to be over 100 k's I, I don't ride and if it's too foggy I don't ride but that's that's about it but uh, yeah I, it was sort of my life outside of work it was that was what I was doing was training it didn't really matter how I felt I went out and, and did did what I had to do and uh, went to went to New Orleans and the weather in New Orleans in November is supposed to be lows of 10 to 15 and highs of around 20 to 25 and not too much rain 
what we got was torrential thunderstorms, rain. It was often five degrees and raining on some of the days. There was When it stopped raining, there was ice at night and it was just the wind was crazy and it was it was just it was just terrible weather pretty much the whole time from from the moment that we started i went and i did that race and i i was the first person out of the swim i set the set the record for the fastest fastest woman swim time and probably the fourth fastest deca swimmer overall the training for the swimming had been had been rough i'd say that's one of the mentally hardest training trainings I did I don't swim very often because I'm a fairly natural swimmer but I realized that if I was going to swim for what might be 14 or 15 hours actually I should probably do a couple of long swims and after my first five hour swim I was so beaten up after that the thought of having the thought of getting on a bike even just after swimming for five hours didn't fill me with any joy so I I decided that for the last eight weeks um, that Wednesday afternoons would be swim afternoons and I got in the pool and swam for six hours every Wednesday for I think six or seven weeks. Now I'm going to say this in jest but really while I was doing those swims I wanted to slip my wrists in the pool. I mean it was it was the mentally the hardest training to get into a pool by yourself and swim for six hours up and down this pool was was brutally hard. It got physically easier very quickly each week physically it got much easier but mentally it that was that was hard. That was really, really hard. Even listening to music, but but it paid off because I got in the pool and in the in the swim in New Orleans, and you know, with everybody around you, there are other people doing this. You're not the only crazy one in the pool. It actually went really easily. I was I was surprised. I, um, I the best thing I ate in the pool were meatballs. My support crew fed me meatballs periodically, and I just I broke it down into into 1.2 kilometer segments and just swam 1.2 kilometers all the time without stopping, and just and got out of the pool and couldn't. Like it was, it was mentally hard because you really have to keep your head in the game. You really have to keep your head in the game at all times in a in a in a race that long. I and mean, at the start, that can be quite difficult. But I'm just swam smoothly. Um, it was how, it was a real phenomenal experience. Awesome. How did you keep going in the trainings in those six hour trainings? Like, what kept you going when it got really hard mentally? <laughs> the thought of how I would feel if I stopped before the designated time. I was like, oh, well, I've already gone like four hours. Because the first two hours would be all right, and then it was like the middle two or three hours would be the hardest. And I'd be like, well, I've taken the afternoon off work, and I will hate myself if I now get out of the pool before my designated six hours is up. And <laughs> so I was, like, I was like, I just have to keep going, because otherwise I'll be disappointed in myself. And then there was also in the pool I would start at lunchtime. So you know, like I sort of have a little game of, you know, well, there's the lunch crowd going home and then the pool would get really empty and then I'd be like, oh, then there's the preschoolers that come in for swimming lessons and I'd watch them have their swimming lessons and, and then like just break it down to little bits and then the afters, then the school age kids would come in for their lessons and, and then there'd be the first adult swim team that came in and then I was like, oh, and if I make it to 6.30, that's when the, that's when the, the faster triathletes come in and I've got to keep swimming until then because I know my physio brings in his kid and, and I, I, I'll watch out for Mike when he comes. I'll swim until Mike comes. Okay. So yeah, just breaking it down into little bits and just making little, making up little games. And I do a lot of maths in my head, you know, fractions and percentages of how far I've gone, how far I need to go, um, just anything to keep my mind occupied and also sort of in a zen state. And was that a similar approach to keep your head in the game in the swim at, at the race? Yeah, yeah. So we were in a 50-meter pool, and so I needed to do 12 laps. 
to do. Um, I'd sort of worked out about how, how often I needed to eat and drink. And I was like, that'll probably be about 12 laps. So every time I just counted to 12 and then, you know, fractions and percentages of 12. And that was pretty much, and then I was swimming in some, in a lane with, with a girl that I was faster than. So then like, oh, you know, counting the laps, that how many laps did it take me to pass her each time? Just, just stupid stuff to keep your brain occupied enough, but so that you can still focus. You know, if you, if you daydream too much, then you lose your focus and then it, then it can go wrong. So Sort of enough enough brain effort to, to focus, but but not but not too much so you get distracted from what you're actually doing. Mm. And swim distance for the whole thing, like how far yeah. is that for a Decker Ironman? Thirty eight kilometers. Thirty eight k. All right. So that's seventy six. No, seven hundred and sixty laps of the Length. pool. Yeah. yeah. So seven hundred sixty lengths. Lengths of the, of the pool. pool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's impressive. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of logistics for that, you get in the pool and then you swim yeah. until you've done yeah. 760 until lengths. Yeah. Yeah. So I had, I had two people as support crew, one, one friend from Washington DC and one friend that I, that I took from work because she's like the most awesome project manager at work and she does Ironman so she knows about sports. So I, I said, I think I need to fly you over to help me do this, <laughs> do this mission and, and support crew are critical and keeping you fed and watered and you know, seeing what you need mm. before you need it. Yeah, everybody had their food and water set up at the end of the lane, and you know, there were some spew buckets at each end of the pool in case, you know, you needed to be sick, which many people were. There was yeah. a lot of chlorine in the pool, and it didn't go down with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, 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 and they'd be a fair bit ingested. So you're, you're yeah. basically <laughs> in the pool, the only times you get out to go to the bathroom and then get oh, back yeah, in again. Yeah, don't, you, don't, you don't really do that. If it's, if it's just number ones, you don't get out. Okay, no wonder this. Which seems really obvious first, but uh, at the end it's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be swimming behind someone real close then. No. <laughs> no. All right, so straight out of the pool and onto the bike? Yeah, so where the pool was, because they'd wanted us to use a 50, 50 metre pool rather than a 25 metre pool, we had an hour's drive that was actually included in the time. You didn't get that deducted. So you had an hour's drive back to the race site. And yeah, I'd, a lot of people don't get straight on the bike, but I think if you want to do well in, in a deck Ironman, it's it's known that you need to get straight on your bike. So I got to the, uh, I, I had some food while I was in the car and dried off properly and I pretty much got straight on the bike and it was sort of been 10 o'clock at night or so, 11 o'clock at night maybe when I got on my bike and uh, it, was, it was pretty lonely out there because I was the only person out there for probably the next two hours and, and it was dark and I was tired and um, actually, having swum that far, really, your, your shoulders and arms get quite sore, and I didn't really realise until I did the quintuple how much you use your shoulders and arms on a bike. Um, you don't know that until they're until they're incredibly sore from swimming. So it was pretty hard. Those those first few hours on the bike were probably some of the some of the hardest. Just trying to stay awake on this dead flat, dead straight piece of bike trail. Yeah, and were you you were on a loop track for for that? It was an out and out yeah. and back. So sort of six k's out, six k's back. Okay, and then doing the maths in my head, so for eighteen hundred kilometers, maybe one hundred and fifty laps, maybe. Okay. I think yeah, I yeah. think I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, and it was a lot. <laughs> so so headspace on the on the bike, for, especially for the first couple of hours when there's no one else yeah. around. Yeah. How did you work through that? I'm assuming that, that there's that. minimal games that you can you can figure out with that. That was sheer determination. 
that was just sheer determination. Like, I'm a really poor singer, but in situations like that, I sing at the top of my lungs, and it keeps me and other people awake. And just, the, like, it was just willing myself to stay awake. Just willing myself to stay awake. And as soon as somebody came onto the bike course, I was like, oh, you know, you'd see them. You'd be like, oh, where will I see them next? And But just sheer determination those first three hours. And knowing that, so I wanted to ride about 80 Ks before I went and had a sleep. And it was just a matter of setting that goal and this is what I need to do. And, and then occasionally I would sprint a lap just to try and, you know, mix it up. I'm not really very into sprinting, but, you know, it turned out that that worked a little bit to keep me awake uh, if I sprinted some and just not thinking about sleeping. Brutal, brute force mm. yeah and how long did the how long did the bike section end up taking you so that took me so I started at 11 o'clock that night and then it took me four full days and then until probably two o'clock the next so over, just over four and a half days um, in that time we did have about four hours of stoppage due to the weather we couldn't be out when it was thunderstorming and because this is a race that the top clock keeps ticking that all just gets added onto your time. So there was there were a bunch of hours that I um, that I couldn't be out on the course because of the weather, and and so that slowed me up a lot. I was a little bit slower than I would have liked to have been on the bike, but you know when when you're not actually riding for for four hours of that due to the weather, and it was cold. It was cold, cold. I've I mean I bike here all year round. I've biked in minus. 10 degrees in Washington DC bike commuting. I, I don't think I've ever been so cold as I was on on that bike with the with the tiredness compared kind of tiredness and and the weather together and there were lots of punctures and it was pretty interesting watching in that bike in the bike section of that. Um, I'm I definitely out of all the people I wasn't I wasn't the best ever cyclist there. But I I was second person off the bike only just. There was somebody who just finished like half an hour before me. But I would say that I was most used to riding in adverse conditions. You know, I was like, well, it's windy and it's raining. Oh, well, I just keep riding because that's, it was pretty interesting to see so many of these top athletes that had done many of these deckers. Like, oh, this was my first one, but there were a lot of guys racing. You know, they were, they were pros at this. And how much more they were mentally messed up by the bad weather because they're used to racing and training and racing in, in nice conditions. And to me, I was like, well, this is, this is how it is. So, mm. So I just need to keep riding, whereas they would stop a lot and they'd complain a lot about the weather. But I was like, well, this, this, this is just how it is. Um, it's, it was, it was a real nice. It was like, this is, this is my plan, and this is what I'm going to do, and and I, and I just went and did it. And, and for me, that was hugely satisfying to be like, well, I decided I was going to do it like this. I decided I was going to do it at this speed, and I was going to do this many laps per day, and um, sleep this much, and just went and did it. And to me, that like being able to execute a plan well is is incredibly satisfying. Mm. And I, I mean, I think there's always in athletics, but all in all aspects of life, there's always environmental conditions that are gonna yeah. that are gonna happen. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like training in Wellington that um, if yeah. you waited for a, <laughs> if you waited for good weather, you'd never really go. Although actually today's today's looking pretty nice, but I think there's again a lot of people get thrown off by those environmental yeah. conditions physically yeah. but also um when they're when they're yeah. working on other life goals that something happens just boom but as you say yeah. it, it's about putting yourself there and training getting yourself yeah. used to it so yeah. that when it happens when you need to perform then you can just go and go and do it one thing that i am interested in though is that four hours of enforced time off i mean you were you're going for a world record here yeah how how did that affect your psyche that you couldn't like had you yeah. planned to have a break around that time anyway 
No, not at all. So, oh, one of them was. One of them. One of them was when I was going to go to sleep. So one of them. So there was. I think it was in three. There were three separate times where we had to break. So maybe it was more than four hours, but there were three separate incidents. But two of them weren't um, at all when I was planning to planning to take a break at all. And two of them were when I was completely soaking wet, um, which is not ideal to be stopping a bit cold. But, you know, and at first it was like, I found it quite, it made me a little bit agitated, but I was like, no, I can't be agitated. I, like, I really need to stay calm and I need to stay mentally in control. And this is just the way it is and you have to accept it. How are we best going to make use of this time? And one of my support crew had a, had a Jeep. And so when that happened, we decided I'll, I'll just get into the Jeep and lie down. And if I can sleep, then I can sleep. If I can't, at least I'm still, I'm just resting. I'll just, I'll just go and rest. And so... While it was annoying, you had like you have to you have to take that out of the equation. It's like there's nothing you can do about it, and so like I just need to make the best of it. So I'll get a little bit of extra rest. It really disturbed my rhythm because both of the times it happened to be when I was just in a really good rhythm and it was going well and easy. So that's but you know you just have to not you have to not get upset about it because there's there's long things you need you need patience, and if you get upset, you can't be patient. And so you need to keep your head in a really good headspace so that you can be patient and be okay with whatever the race throws at you. So just the first one was a little bit hard, but within five minutes, we'd worked out what we were going to do. And so when it happened after that, we were like, well, we know what the plan is. This is and my support crew knew what the plan is, so they'd have the Jeep ready with, with a blanket and um, and a pillow, and and I'd just go straight straight into there, yeah. Nice, nice. And before we talk about the run, I think that's a nice segue that you've just set up for me there because <laughs> there, were f- there were five words that you focused on around the Decker Ironman and around your mindset with it particularly. Can you let us know what they were and how you came up with them? Yeah, so um, first one is courage because you don't know what these are going to be, what these races, how these races are going to be until you've actually done one and you can't do one until you've done one. And so there's a lot of fear of the unknown. So you need, really need a lot of courage to, to do one of these. And you need, to, you need the courage to carry on when it gets shitty and you feel tired and sore and you, there's a lot of courage throughout the race just to keep going. Next with, word. with courage, before we jump into yeah. the next one, how, did you, how do you cultivate courage? I think it comes back to that not quitting um, like I was terrified before the race and it's just the thought of this is something I want to do and if I don't do it that will be harder to live with than facing the fear mm-hmm. um, so for me that that having to live with myself of not having done something I really wanted to and something I've really trained to do um, is a big driving force yeah cool all right Second word, commitment, and you know that's a lot about the training. You've got to be committed to it. You've got to you've got to have a goal. I, I don't. For me, it wouldn't be possible to do without having a, a really major goal and really being committed to that goal. Because all those days that you don't want to go out and train, that um, that goal that goal helps you get out there and do it. Um, and also commitment to actually while you're doing the race. You know, it's some people quit because they're not committed enough to go through whatever it takes, whatever weather or whatever, however they're feeling preparation and preparation feeds into that that courage thing because for me one of the things I do do is like I prepare physically but also um, if you're going to be racing for 10 days you need a lot of stuff and you need and you don't know how it's going to you don't know how it's going to go there are so many things can go wrong and a few little things can go wrong that that will be magnified over the course of 10 days so you have to sort of have plans a through maybe f and then still be flexible but 
being prepared to know what each of those plans might be, what you might do if this happens, I can do this, or this happens, I can do this. Um, preparing the support crew, they got a 20-page document on on how it should go and how it might go and what to do if it was going really terribly wrong. Um, and for me, that being prepared is the best thing I can do to to face to be able to go out and face these fears, to try and have an idea of what, what it might be. And uh, then we have, uh, we'll go with patience, because patience, when, when I, even before I did my first double iron man on my own, um, Sylvia, who actually was the women's record holder that, that I broke, she held that record for 26 years. I met her right out, or I met her soon after she, she um, had set, set that record. And I hadn't even done my first Ironman at the time. And I remember talking to Sylvia and just being blown away by these people that did these crazy things. And um, Sylvia said, she said to me, she said, you know, when you do your first Ironman, she said, all you need to know, she said, the only thing you really need to know is to have patience. She says, and if you get impatient, you just think of Sylvia telling that you that you need to have patience. Because she said, if you have patience, then then the pain doesn't really matter, she said. But but if you don't have patience, then then the pain turns into suffering. And that's probably some of the, the best advice I've ever gotten in the ultra distance world is like, if you can just be patient, then it isn't suffering. Mm, that is, yeah, that, that's really cool actually. And yeah. it's, a, it's a good way to think about it. And it's in the Decker Ironman, I'd say, like while I achieved that a little bit in the quintuple, in the Decker Ironman, I'd say there was a total of about five hours in the 10 and a bit days where I wasn't patient, which blew me away. Like there was only a handful of hours where where I wasn't patient and they were two, four of the two, there were two lots of two late at night on the run where my feet were rotting and um, and one time in the morning where, where I just didn't know how I was going to carry on but that's really not too bad over over that length of time mm. and those five yeah. hours there was a lot of suffering in those uh, there was yeah there was a bit of suffering yeah <laughs> but but still even at that point like I spent a lot of time reflecting on how it had been in the double Ironman and even in the quintuple Ironman and I'd say far less than any of those races. It, that blew me away. It really blew me away that, that there was almost no suffering in the in the Decker. Fifth word. Yeah, so the last word is control and this sort of brings together some, some of the others but it's that really I think I've spoken a little bit already about it is that keeping your brain in control, you know, and you start the swim and the first couple of hours are all really exciting and like, oh, I'm having a great time. I'm wearing my wetsuit, which makes you faster and smoother through the water and just feels really great. And I remember being in, in the pool after a couple of hours. I'm like, oh, I've had a really great time. And, and I started thinking about a little bit about it. I'm like, well, I swam for two hours. Best case scenario, it's going to take me in the order of 14 hours. So I've done one seventh that. And then, and then after I've done that, I have to ride my bike for four and a half or five days, and then I have to run for five days. And and as I started down this little rabbit hole, I realised that I needed to not be going down there because that like that was not going to do me any good. I was like, no, I need to I need to just think about the next 1.2 k's that I'm going to swim because none of that other stuff is good. I need to be in control of my brain and just be really, really in the moment. Um, just be really in the moment. Just focus on what I'm doing now, the little segment that I'm that I'm working on now, which in the pool was was 1.2 k k segments, and in doing that, again, it comes to you don't you don't lose your patience if you do that. It's sort of it's just about being really focused on what you're doing right now. But then the oh, a day and a half after the swim, it was I'd sort of finishing up my first full day on the bike. So I'd ridden I'd been on been on the bike for about 27 or 28 hours at this point in time. I was like, oh yeah, nailed that day. 
I had a really good day riding. I rode nice and hard, and that was awesome. And yeah, nailing this bike. And then I and then I thought about it a bit more, and I'm like, well, well, that was one day. I still have another three and a half days that I need to be riding my bike. And then it occurred to me, and then I was like, oh, well, have I been riding too hard? You know, I've been so focused on, you know, staying in the moment. Have I been riding too hard? And I realized that I hadn't been. Um, I'd been going at, at the right speed. But it made me think of, think about that you need to control your brain to not only stay in the moment so that you don't get distracted by how much you still have to do, because if you distract by how much you have to do, you just lose the plot because of the, the human brain isn't, des- isn't designed, I think, to, to comprehend all of that at once. But at the same time as being so focused in the moment and in control, you also still have to always know what the big picture is. You have to know what the ultimate goal is so you don't do something now that's going to ruin it in the long term. Um, and to me, like I spent a lot of time thinking about that the next day just because I found that really interesting um, in a sort of in a control way and I don't think that I can think of any other case in my life where I've had these sort of two really discordant things of having to be focused in the moment but also having to be completely in control and focused on on the bigger picture at at exactly the same time it's just keeping that brain constantly in a good headspace and you know if something if something bothers you not letting it get to you I mean at these at these races there is drama there is racer drama there's support crew drama there's race director drama like there's just always drama you have a bunch of people who don't know each other nobody's slept more than a couple of hours a night people's personalities are all different and um and there is drama and and it affects some people some people get caught up in this drama i decided that we were going to stay well away from it i tend not to cause drama but I didn't want to be drawn into anybody else's drama and so when you saw when I saw something like that going on some of it did start to affect me one of the, one of the other races got got quite angry at me for for no for no there was no reason for her to be angry at me she was just she was just she was just angry and normally in normal life that would upset me and it started to upset me but I was like I can't I can't let that get to me I can't be drawn into that drama I just have to I have to be in control of me and I can only control me and all these lessons that we learn when we go to leadership courses or communication courses actually they're all true because it's like you have to just be in control and not let anything get to you it's like this is this is happening I have no control over that but I can control how I respond to it and I've had that said to me quite a lot of times in other parts of my life but actually it was it was pretty awesome during that race to be able to to really be to really live that just being completely in control of your brain and your emotions and now that I'm, while I'm not racing, I, when something bothers me at work or in my personal life, I try to think about how I would react to it if I was doing a Deca, if I was doing a Deca Ironman, how, how would I deal with this? And actually it turns out that that's quite a useful technique for me <laughs> outside mm. of racing. Yeah, I really enjoy those five words. And I think like one of the things that this, this podcast is about is, is putting yourself through hard stuff. And yeah. it's, it's only by, like, we, we get told all of these things and there's all great information out there. But what do they say? If information was everything, we'd all be billionaires with six-pack abs. But it's really by putting ourselves through those hard situations mm-hmm. that we cement those lessons and we see, hey, actually, this is where that is applicable. And then we learn and, and we can take those and, and apply them to other areas of our life yeah. afterwards where just watching a youtube video might not do that to you um yeah it was for me that was that was pretty that was pretty spectacular christine tell me about the run 
the run is always the weakest of the three disciplines for me. Um, and and I've been doing a lot of training for it, and um, but it's always the thing that that scares me the most. But that's you know you gotta you you gotta you gotta face these fears, and it's always a bit where I I'm pretty comfortable on the bike, but I I'm never really comfortable that there's always pain on the run. So you get off the bike, and you've been sitting on this bike for four and a half days, and while my shoulders have now recovered from the swim because that's pretty that's pretty pretty fun to actually have physical recovery while you're still doing the race. So I get onto the run and I've, I've chatted to, I was like, I'm going to walk, I'm going to start by walking because my legs are all just, all my cycling muscles are just, they've just been going. So I'll walk a little bit. And there was one, the guy that had gotten off the bike just a little bit before me, he's, he's done a number of deckers. He's done a double decker. He's done a triple decker. Um, so I, I chatted with Gregor a little bit. He's from Sweden and he's a really lovely guy. So I got off and so I walked with him a little bit. And I chatted to him, and he's like, oh, he says, you don't run the first marathon. <laughs> he's like, only uh, only Frank, who ended up winning, only Frank runs the first marathon. And so there were other people that ended up running the first marathon. But but Greg is like, for us cyclists, you don't run the first marathon. So I was, you know, like, this guy seems to know what he's talking about, and my legs are really quite tight. They did not, I was like, oh, if I start running, I might actually tear something. So I'm just going to do a fast walk. So I did a fast walk at first marathon, which which really blew by. But um, but halfway through the first marathon, so like distances that I far less than I would have run at least once a week for the last seven months, I started to get blisters. And I think that the chlor the chlorine affected everybody. Um, and I think that the chlorine on just softened the skin um, of my feet and. My feet were really quite swollen getting off the bike, which I've never I've never had before. Um, I hear of other people having swollen feet. I'd never really had that before. And they'd been so cold and so wet for so long that after 20Ks, I, I started to have blisters. Um, and and when you've got that far to run, that's that's not good. So it's like I need to, normally I'm with blisters, I just let them be, but thinking, well, you know, this how nasty will that be? I've never run this far. So I went and had them treated and um, that took time too. And that was quite, again, like the, the race stoppages, having to go and see the doctor um, to have my feet treated was, you know, that seemed like a big time waster because I was on, I was, I was moving really well, even though I was just walking, I was moving really well on covering ground really, really well. But, you know, you have to have that done. So I had that done. And over the next few days, my feet just got worse and worse and worse. And I was seeing the doctor to have my feet fixed up once or twice a day. So it was it was like at least an hour, an hour and a half every morning to have my feet to the new bits taped. And after the first two days, the pain of putting my shoes on after I'd slept for three hours was surpassed any other pain I've ever had in my life. That's <laughs> all I can say. And that first lap on the last three days, the pain was so unbearable, I was just about fainting. Um, but, you know, you say, and, and it's freezing cold. It's either freezing cold or it's it's cold and rainy. And bundled up and um, I was like, well, I just have to, I just have to keep going. I just, I just have to keep going. And I was like, oh, it'll get better once once I've once I've run a little bit. So I did start to run. I sort of did a run-walk run strategy for the rest. I, after the first marathon, I... I picked pieces of the, the loop again. It was an out and back. It was about a 1.6 or 1.7 kilometer out and back. So there were 249 laps, I think, of that. And so I, I had my little spots where I would walk and had my little spots where I would run. And uh, and I pretty much ran and walked the same bits 
for the rest of the race. But but those every morning, those first couple of laps, the first uh, probably three laps, were, were incredibly painful. But then I'd be like, oh no, it'll it'll just get better. It'll just numb off after a while. I just need to I just need to work through this, and it'll numb off after a while. And and it did. And then I was like, well, you know, if I if I want to beat this world record, I I need to keep running. So. So I did. So, so I just kept telling myself, oh, my feet aren't really that bad. They're, they're really not that bad. They're, I'm just being whiny about it. They're, just, they're not really that bad. And I never, I never looked at my feet because something deep inside me told me they were that bad. But um, by this stage, I also couldn't use my the fingers of my hand from the biking. My hand was like this. So I had my support crew had to dress me anyway. So Anna took my shoes off and my socks off. And, and so I made a point of not looking at my feet and just convincing myself that they that they really weren't that bad. Muscle wise during the run, I would say I felt better and better as the run went on. That first marathon they were my muscles were quite tight. But after that, all the training that I'd done had really I was really impressed with how well that had prepared my body for the run. Um, in the past I've had there's something called decker shin and it's where a, a tendon in, in the shin um, becomes inflamed and it's it's from repetitive movement and when you're going up and down a road it's not like a trail you always just have the it's exactly the same movement all the time and the the tendon in the front of your foot that allows your foot to go up and down um, becomes a flame so I'd had that in the past I didn't have any of that my legs didn't really get sore my knee got a little bit sore at one point but the doctor taped that up beautifully but yeah it's as far as my muscles and body went fantastic but the feet they they were something else and in the last couple of days, I took more ibuprofen and, and Panadol than, than I've ever taken in my life, probably just about put together. I, I did not exceed the recommended dose, not, not the recommended doses on the packet, but the recommended dose by when you have, have painkillers prescribed by a doctor. Um, and there was, there was a fantastic doctor, Jade. She was an ex-US um, Army doctor. She absolutely fantastic and was monitoring everybody. That's a really nice thing. Jade, Jade's a fantastic doctor. So she was watching everybody and she would pull people off the course if she deemed them unfit or unsafe. And she monitored what sort of painkillers we were taking so we didn't take too much and, and ran. And having having that sort of support there and knowing that she was watching so closely made me be able to push myself even harder because I was like, well, I, actually, I don't, need to, I don't need to be concerned about me doing something that I really shouldn't um, because Jade will be watching. She'll say it. If, it's, if, I, if, if there's something going horribly wrong with me, she will... She will say it. But yeah, those those feet are just the mantras. I just I want this world record. I just need to keep on running. I want this world record. I just need it doesn't it's not really that bad. It's it's not really I'm just gonna I'm just gonna carry on. And my support crew both after the race, some time after the race, when I said, Oh, you know, there's this double decker in Mexico at the end of the year, maybe they were like, No, no, you can't do that and like they were probably more traumatized about the pain that I was going through than I was because I talked to them now and I was like, actually, like I know that was really sore, but there's not really so much trauma from it. But when when I finally finished the race and had, had done the drug testing and stuff and had a little bit of a shower, I couldn't really shower very much, I was about to pass out in the hot, under the hot water and the doctor took all the, the taping off my feet, the face that she made at that, my feet had literally started to rot. And after carrying on running, such that if you hadn't seen my feet being treated, you wouldn't have known. No, no, nobody picked how bad my feet were if they hadn't actually seen them during the race. I was unable to stand up on my own for two days. If I wanted to go to the toilet for the next two days, somebody had to carry me to the toilet. And people were like, but you, you, you looked like you were running pretty normally. It didn't look like your running was getting any worse. And I was like, no, I just told myself that I just had to keep running normally. So 
like for me that was just a huge lesson in mind over matter like i i really didn't think that i wouldn't be able to walk um afterwards so i i had my my camp stretcher because we were camping um at the race site so that was brought up into the the race hq slash dining area where the the doctor could could watch me anytime i wanted to go to the toilet i'd have to ask someone to come along and and sort of carry me so it was pretty embarrassing but but that's all it is but just just how that mind over matter how how strong that can be if you want something so desperately and you know I was thinking about all the work that I put in training and all the work that I put in during the race that I I didn't want to I didn't want to let that world record go now because um I I had I had committed a lot <laughs> Christine why did you want that originally the the world record yeah it was a goal like it was a goal really it was uh I think it's doable I did a lot of maths and and I know, like, I'd done a lot of maths and it seemed possible. It seemed possible for me to beat it. I know some women that have attempted it and I would put them as much better athletes than myself and they haven't made it. So I was like, maybe there's, like, may, maybe, like, you don't know what it's going to be like. Mm. Like, maybe there is something that really, that is a lot harder than it seems, than it should be on paper. Um, but it just seemed like something that was doable and it became a goal and... Yeah, it's not. It's not like any fame or glory comes with it. <laughs> oh, well, you you get to come on the uncomfortable is okay oh, podcast. That's right. How, how's that's, that for glory? <laughs> that's, that's good glory. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I think that like amazing, amazing le- achievement, but also amazing lessons that you have learnt, and and thank you yeah. so much for sharing them with us today as well i've got a few questions that i like to ask everyone towards the end of the conversation christine and i know that maybe these have made you a little bit uncomfortable which is good (laughs) (laughs) but what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it so last night i was at the gym and i was doing 250 meter pieces on the rowing erg and there was there was a lot of pain and and mental and physical pain associated with trying to go as hard as I could for 250 meters at the time and and not being able to you know stand or speak after each of the pieces <laughs> and actually how I got through them was actually thinking about this today that that actually uncomfortable is okay and and if I want to get better and I want to do well I have to be okay with this and it mm. will end nice yeah. nice and actually uh, I get messages occasionally from previous guests that flick me something and they're like oh yeah I was out for this 100k bike ride and I just keep repeating uncomfortable is okay to myself yeah. and uh, yeah. Holly who's been on a couple of times doing the coast to coast or one of her ultra races and yeah uncomfortable is okay so it's I'm glad that it's become a mantra for a few people as they, as they work hard which is cool I think it will be for me too I, nice. I can see it in my future <laughs> Christine what's the next next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you so in an hour or so I'm going surfing and and that terrifies me I love the water but but trying to learn to surf terrifies me that's sort of more of a mental a mental uncomfort but in terms of of big goals I I don't really know having done the decker I actually feel like I've I've proven everything I need to prove to myself and I've been prioritizing some other things in my life in the last six months but just in the last month or so I I've decided that life is getting too comfortable again and I, I need to come up with with something else epic to to work towards to challenge myself. And I don't have that yet because it does need to be the right thing to commit to. So 
In terms of big things, um, I, I'm starting to work on, on what that might be right now. So awesome. There needs to be something again, yeah. I'm interested in finding out, and I mean, we yeah. might have to do a, another podcast when, when you have yeah. uh, figured that one out and, and completed yeah. it. I mean, we've talked a lot already about strategies, but what other strategies do you use to approach uncomfortable situations? The knowledge that I've been there before and it's been okay, um, the knowledge that I have been in a lot of pain um, and it's been okay, um, that that the feeling of having done it will will supersede any, the the goodness of, of having done it will supersede any pain that I'm feeling now. That's, I mean, that's, that's a big driving force and, and something when people ask me, like, how, how do I manage to do this training or people want to start being more active, it's like, yeah, you don't want to do it when you start because it will be uncomfortable, but, but if you can do it enough times to know how awesome you'll feel afterwards, you'll get over that hump of, of thinking about how uncomfortable it will be beforehand. So it's just, it's that knowledge of how nice it'll be, you know, like when I get up in the morning and it's dark and I have to ride to work. How awesome will that hot shower feel when I get to work? And, and how awesome will that cup of coffee be afterwards? That's That, that gets me through a lot. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that one. Um, Christine, I've got a couple of other quick questions for you, but I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. But also thank you for being an example of going out and trying to figure out what's possible as yeah. well and yeah. pushing yourself yeah. in, in that in that respect and, and just showing showing people that hey normal-ish people can yeah. go and yeah. do things that are uh, that are pretty epic as well yeah. so yeah thank you for so much for that thank you and like I, I have to say like because we're in a podcast and it's not it's not TV I am a physically I am a pretty normal person I am not some skinny crazy athlete if you met me in the street you wouldn't you wouldn't say oh my god she's so skinny I'm so jealous of her um, I'm, I'm I'm pretty pretty average physically <laughs> yeah Christine do you have uh, other ways that people can connect with you do you post your stuff anywhere or I, I don't really partly because I like I I don't have enough energy to to do that a whole lot um, I'm on Facebook and um, Christine Coldry um, on Facebook occasionally I will post a, a picture or two mostly I post mostly I post while I'm doing well mostly I have support group posts while I'm doing a crazy race so if anybody's interested um, actually probably the best way to get hold of me is there was a Facebook page, Getting Kiwi to the Deckerman USA finish line, where um, my support crew held a running account of, of how it was going and pictures and, and comments from, from how we did. So that's probably probably the best place to, to go to, um, to, cool. to get hold of and see, see some of the craziness. Awesome. Christine, do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Oh, a challenge. I would say get out and start. Start. whatever it is you've been thinking of start because because that can be really hard and and I, I I say that because having I've been a little bit active since the race but I haven't been as active and and that starting is hard I've I've learned how hard starting is so start and whatever it is you're doing start it and make it a habit do it regularly even if it's not even if you can't do it all all at once start somewhere it's a great challenge Christine thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today thank you there you have it team I hope you enjoyed that one uh, it was great to chat with Christine about, about her experiences and about her learnings 
awesome challenge to finish it with as well. Get out there and start. Uh, and it's going to be uncomfortable to start with, but it is going to be better and better. Um, and I've been in that situation often enough to know that for me that is definitely the case. So let us know what it is that you're starting with um, and and hopefully we can give you a little bit of support with that as well. I think probably my my favourite thing that came out of that conversation was that it's not suffering if you're patient and I know that I'm often really guilty of not being patient um, so I think next time I'm next time I'm in a place where I'm feeling a bit of suffering I'm gonna try and practice that I'm gonna I'm gonna think of Christine and the Decker Ironman being patient uh, and I'll let you know how I go with that one couple of thank yous. Uh, thank you Jylan for your awesome editing skills. Thank you to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music. Thank you guys as always for taking the time to, to sit down and have a listen. Uh, if any of you are interested in some coaching around getting out of your comfort zone, taking on challenges, mental fitness, building resilience, Get in touch with me, uh, send me an email, uncomfortableisokay at gmail.com. Um, I have been coaching a few people and have been really enjoying it and the people that I've been working with have also been enjoying it as well. Uh, yeah, reach out, set up a chat and uh, we'll see if, uh, if I can help you out in any way. Thank you all so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. We'll see you again at the end of the week.